and there was an image of a young guy with dirty blonde hair and, and he was about to jump off some kind of ledge unspecified. And then a, a face came into the into the dream and it was of a, of a woman, of a, a very beautiful woman. Maybe she was an angel or something along those lines if you believe in those things. But anyway, it was a spiritual experience. And she said, if you save him, you too shall live. Hello and welcome to Passion Harvest. I am Louisa, your host. Thank you so much for joining me wherever you are in the world. I've got an amazing guest today and I can't wait to share this interview with you. Dr. Stephen G. Post, a, a longer life, a happier life, a healthier life, above all, a life that matters so that when you leave the world, you have changed it for the better. If science said you could have all of this by altering one behaviour, would you? Dr. Stephen G. Post spreads the science and of giving and the commitment to the greater good. Stephen is a bioethicist at Stony Brook University and an expert in compassionate care and the relationship between giving and happiness. He's the author of several books, including When Good Things Happen to Good People, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, and God and Love on Route 80. Stephen G. Post, welcome to Passion Harvest. I'm really, really so excited to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, oh, Louisa. I couldn't be happier. <laughs> I I mean, I just love all the work and the research you're doing and, and the messages that you share. And I'd like to talk about your books, but first I'd like to dive into a couple of things. And you're kind of one of the experts on this. What is the relationship between giving and happiness? We are all deep down inside, evolutionarily and spiritually, givers. And so the fulfillment that comes to us and the inner peace that we feel when we give, importantly, with kindness, you know, there's the sort of the external, uh, almost uh, emotionless kind of giving, the routinized giving, that's a, not as powerful, but but uh, but kind giving is is the core and, you know, shifting your emotional centers away from the destructive emotions like bitterness and hostility and rumination and 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 when you give with kindness all the neurology studies show that those neurological circuits that are the basis of these hostile destructive emotions they just get shut off you can't have both turned on at the same time uh and 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 so the more you can cultivate kind giving and giving is a great way to develop uh, your kindness, uh, the better off you will be. You will be happier and healthier and odds are um, live a longer life uh, and you'll be more gratified. And I just want to clarify, giving doesn't necessarily mean presence or, or monetary contributions. It can be time. I'll leave you to answer that. But well, no, 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 that's a great. I mean, so, so, so I, 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 I speak about gift love or love as the hub of giving, and and I have a I have an idea about love, which I picked up 
when I was a student at, at the University of Chicago many, many, many years ago, um, that um, when the happiness or the well-being and the security of another is as meaningful to you as your own, and sometimes more so, you love that person. And that holds whatever you're involved in doing, whether it's caring for a child or, or caring for uh, an, an ill person in a hospice or uh, having a cup of coffee with an old friend who's had some hard times, whatever the situation might be. Maybe it's a clinician who's made a big medical mistake and can't live with herself. Uh, you, you can help people to understand that um, those who make no mistakes make nothing and that you know we all we all are imperfect and flawed so there's so many different expressions of 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 love and there's also just you know the giving of a gift or the the helping somebody across the street uh so uh all of these things are forms of of giving and in fact studies show that even writing a check for a charity can be uplifting emotionally and can uh uh, help you with regard to happiness and the diminishing of, of uh, depression. But the thing is, you, you, it's not just a writing of the check. It, you know, the individuals have to have some sort of affective, uh, sort of existential or gut level interest and commitment in what they're doing. So that's the same thing with the, with the physicians. This is a big, huge hospital here at Stony Brook. And in, out just outside of New York, and the physicians who stay in touch with empathy and kindness in their interactions with patients have much longer and more successful careers. So it helps them not to get caught up in the kind of the routinization and all just the, you know, treating the disease and not the person. So this is the, the center that I'm in. This is my my office here. It's it's a large group of people. Uh, it's the Center for Medical Humanism, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics. Emphasis humanism and compassionate care, because that's really how people thrive. That's how these students uh, uh, were motivated to get into medicine to begin with. And so the more you can do to actually help them keep in touch with that inner being, the better off they will be. And they can they can navigate the difficulties of our world because it is a harsh world right now it's very polarized and you know acrimonious and and uh, there's not much forbearance for patients and and so this is how they can manage that and not be overwhelmed by it mm. i mean it, it's kind of obvious but it's just wonderful that you've actually done this scientific research that proves these things that kindness and goodness and helping others actually um, positively affects our health, happiness and, and joy. On the helping others thing, you know, uh, actually a little story. I came here from yeah. Cleveland, Ohio. You've probably not been to Cleveland. <laughs> I'm guessing, although it's actually a wonderful city. And that was 15 years ago. And they recruited me here. And I I had been 20 years in a, in a, in a, in a suburb of Cleveland and we raised our family there and it was hard for me to make the move. Um, so I felt a little bit out of, out of sorts for a while. And I found that the best thing I could do was just, you know, come into this medical school and think more intentionally about how I can be kind to people. 
And I use mirth, you know, so if you if you look at why good things happen to good people, there's a section there on humor, because if you use, you know, uplifting, uh, generous, respectful humor, it can change people's attitudes in a millisecond. And, you know, it's just like that. And and so even during the covid uh, period, uh, I would come in here every day and and I'd see some people looking a little bit uh morose and 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 uh and i i started using uh call them dad jokes you know uh what did the fish say when it swam into the wall damn or <laughs> you know one of the ones i invented back then i i keep keep them in a notebook because i believe in mirth i believe that mirth is an expression of love and giving it's a way of giving again it can't be distasteful uh it's not to say that people should be making uh disparaging comments about obese individuals with an earshot of the door, which sometimes happens in medical settings. But no, everything has to be respectful and uplifting. But uh, this is for the for the people who are philosophical and medical in your audience. Okay. So what do you do if you are an agnostic, if you have dyslexia and insomnia? Agnostic, dyslectic, Insomnia. No idea. <laughs> I'm not sure. You're up all night wondering about the existence of dog. Okay. <laughs> like, you know, God, dog. That's, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. The, that's the dyslexia part. Right, right, right. So just, that's... you know, I love, I love mirth. And it's funny how, you know, many spiritual people have a quality of mirth. They don't want to be overbearing. You know, there's this a kind of natural uh, joy in their countenance, and people like Dostoevsky wrote um, the idiot, sort of a, you know a book, a book about kind of a Christ-like figure who uh, has lots of lots of humor and, and does things that are a little bit quirky, uh, but it, it's all it's all good, and it makes people smile. It, it brings joy. I again, your book, and I just loved your phrase. It's good to be good. I mean. It's 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 beautiful. I just want to backtrack just briefly because you did you do speak about your calling and synchronicities. How do you mind just sharing briefly with the audience? How did you get into this field of work? Well, I'm going to keep this relatively brief, but okay. I, I uh I have to just tell the story, the origin story of this. I was about 15 and I was in a prep school in Concord, New Hampshire, uh, an Anglican place called St. Paul's School. Uh, and um, I had this remarkable sacred studies teacher. We studied all the world religions. Um, you know, later on in life, I would get to study with Joseph Campbell and all kinds of interesting people. But Rod Wells was our teacher there. And and uh, Episcopal priest. So um, I was a little different than most people there. They were off playing hockey. I was walking in the wooded paths, cherishing nature and reading scriptures from the world. <laughs> I was very pathetic, I guess Aristotle would say. Uh, and um, that was my, my thing. So um, one morning, uh, just after I'd kind of gotten up, but not quite, I had this interesting dream of a um, of a road heading toward the west. Uh, it was 
just totally mist enfolded. And so you couldn't see more than a couple of inches in front of you. And um, I looked to my left and there was an image of a young guy with dirty blonde hair. And, and he was about to jump off some kind of ledge unspecified. And, um, and then a, a face came into the, into the dream. And it was of a, of a woman, of a, a very beautiful woman. Maybe she was an angel or something along those lines, if you believe in those things. But anyway, it was a spiritual experience. And she said, if you save him, you too shall live. If you save him, you too shall live. And um, I had no idea what that meant, but I, you know, I, I, I found out because a couple of years later, this this dream recurred uh, five times. I was out on the West Coast, headed to Reed College, where, by the way, Steve Jobs slept on my floor, uh, just to say that. <laughs> and uh, we read the autobiography of a yogi and such things. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, I was out in California for the summer at my cousin's house, and uh, I drew a very, very bad draft number for the Vietnam War, and I just did not want to go over there and kill and burn women and children. So I called the people from Reed, at Reed, who I turned down because I wasn't planning to go there, and I asked them, well, do you have a spot open for me? They'd admitted me earlier on, and they said, yeah. So one very early September morning, um, I, I gathered uh, with friends in front of the Nichiren Shosho Buddhist temple where they chant Nam Yoho Renge Kyo. And uh, I, I announced that I was leaving for, uh, for Oregon. That's where Reed is in Portland, Oregon. And uh, an old Japanese American named Gus gave me a gohon zone. That's a word for your audience. It's, a, it, it's basically a scroll and it's got some beautiful Japanese symbols. Um, um, you know, there's there's a heart with a line drawn through it, which be, which means in Japanese, busy, no heart. It's interesting how those things get captured graphically, and uh, oneness of mind, and such things. So, I took the bus up to the uh, Golden Gate Park. I walked across the park and I went across on the Golden Gate Bridge. And it was early in the morning, about eight o'clock, and I really couldn't see more than a few inches in front of me. Uh, but I was on the left side. I got to the middle of the uh, of the bridge. Um, there's only one huge span there. And I heard some noise to my left and I squinted and I saw the outlines of a young guy who had dirty blonde hair uh, and he was looking like he was about to jump. And I, I stopped, I looked, I listened and I said to him, I surely hope you're not planning to jump. And then he was so offended that I had interrupted this incredibly sacred moment for him. He just turned at me and he started spewing uh, curses and even quoting Macbeth. I mean, he was not an uninteresting guy. His name was Harrison, I would find out. <clears throat> and, uh, and I said, wait a minute, before you jump, let me tell you, that when I was 15, two years ago, I was in New Hampshire, 3,000 miles away. And um, and that was two years ago. And I had this dream. And I think I think you were in it. Someone who looked very much like you. And he he just was shocked. And I said, and by the way, you know, I, I told him how I got out there. And 
And we, we carried on a, a, a very peaceful conversation. He calmed down when I told him about this story and he was curious. He had a kind of gentle curiosity about how we could maybe be communicating between time and uh, time and space, you know? And um, so I said, if you come over here and, and step over the railing to where I am, I was on the pedestrian side. I mean, it's a long story. It's in the, it's in the God Love on Route 80 book. But I, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to give you something that will change your life, going to change your luck forever. And he said, what's that? And he was kind of angry again. And I said, it's called a Gohon zone. Uh, and, uh, and he said, well, what the hell? And he actually did walk over and I unscrolled it and I explained some of the, some of the symbols to him again, very quietly and in a, in a peaceful tone. And he really settled down. And I said, look, I'm going to give this to you. And if you um, if you take this, your life will improve. And here's a note to my cousin George. My cousin George Lamont lived in the Mission District of San Francisco. He was a Vietnam vet, um, and um, he lived on Chenery Street. And I'd been there that summer. And I I said, George, this is Harrison. Please look after him. Bring him down to the Buddhist temple. Um, look after him and and let him sleep on the floor where I was sleeping and so forth and and so um harrison walked south on the bridge and i walked north and just as i was walking north suddenly all the all the mist and this had happened in the dream all the mist evaporated it was an incredibly radiant blue sky and sun and i felt i felt that i had experienced something that was pretty pretty unusual some kind of synchronicity to use your word that that um, uh, somehow or another we're more cherished in this universe than we we realize, and that this was kind of set up, and 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 it was a beautiful thing, and 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 um, you know then I went up to 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 read college, and I couldn't quite figure out what the second half of that statement, if you save him, you too shall live, meant until in January, it was kind of rainy. It doesn't snow in Oregon, but it gets Pro, the, 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 the rain freezes and it gets very slippery. And I was in the uh, coffee shop with a bunch of young people uh, and it's about 11 at night and somebody burst through the door. We'd never seen him before. He says, my name's Andy and I've got the fastest motorcycle in the world. It's a Harley Davidson shovelhead. And, and, and that was the fastest bike at the time. And I never rode motorcycles, so I couldn't say no. He said, who wants to go for a ride? I said, I will. Um, and so I went out and I got on this motorcycle and he had, you know, wild eyes and curly red hair and a black jacket on. And he just took off and he hit 150 miles an hour in just less than a minute, went through every red light, every stop sign, went out to the Pacific Coast Highway, uh, went for an hour toward California and he hit 180, even 200 miles an hour. And the bike motorcycle was slip sliding all the way in the, in, in the, in the slush. And I thought I was dead. I really felt that was the end of it. And then lo and behold, uh, with the rain beating in his face, he screamed aloud and he did a U-turn over the midway. And um, I managed to stay on the bike and he brought me back to the exact spot in front of the coffee house in the parking lot where he had picked me up. And now it's, you have to understand, now it's, it's, um, it's, uh, it's 11 at night 
and I, 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 I was so wobbly and I, 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 I barely managed to get off the bike and I walked across this bridge to my dormitory, Ackerman dormitory. And I never picked up the, the they had pay phones in those days. They didn't have cell phones, they had pay phones. I never picked it up, but I'd given the number to my mother. And uh, so I'm, I walk across the threshold and lo and behold, the pay phone rings. And I, I actually felt um, pushed a little bit to pick it up, which was completely uncharacteristic of me. And I picked it up and I said, hello. And the voice was, hey, Stevie, you're alive. Thank God. It was my mother calling from New York. And, and she said she'd woken up in a dream and she had a premonition that I was dead. And she was sweating and, and nervous. And she just wanted to make sure I was okay. And I said, mom, you know, that's really interesting because you're 3,000 miles away. She was in New York, you know, and and somehow or another in, in a mother's love, you picked up my, my situation. And, and that's not uncharacteristic of people's experiences. And, and, and so I became uh, a, a real believer in synchronicity and in the idea that somehow our minds are much more connected, not just in some sort of biological sense, but in a, in a spiritual sense that our minds are gifts and that we all share in this one universal mind and it can be the source of immense creativity and immense connectedness. So that's how I got started. And I've never veered from that. So having a wow. calling, yeah, never veered from it. So, so yeah, so that's, and ha so having a calling is having a feeling that somehow you're, you're where you're supposed to be. I guess that's the simplest way of putting it. And I've always stayed close to that and, you know, studied a lot of biology and a lot of science over the years, but ultimately went to the University of Chicago Divinity School to study world religions with Mersha Eliade, who had written a wonderful book called Shamanism. And uh, Joseph Campbell was there half the year. And I had the opportunity to tell um, those great people about my, my stories in on the uh, on the Golden Gate Bridge and and we I wrote essays about them and they they all were interested in synchronicity, um, and and they knew it was they knew it was real, so so life is a journey and the trick is, um, follow your follow your follow your path, don't I mean you can get knocked off your path, because you know a little more prestige in that job, a little more money in that job, but but the main thing is follow your path and that is where a lot of your happiness will come from because you'll see the coherency the inner the inner reason behind your existence and your and and and, and your life and all of those things gosh what i mean what you explain that so beautifully what i mean what powerful incredible experiences and and you know studying with joseph campbell what an honor and who who has the famous quote follow your bliss oh, um, oh yeah 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 <laughs> and, and 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 when i wrote the god and love on route 80 you know i i had some of joseph campbell's road metaphors in mind like you know for example you don't you don't plan your life if anybody who's listening today thinks that you 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 clearly plan your life. That's an illusion. The bottom line, I mean, you, you might do some planning and a lot of the medical students here are very plan oriented, but I've always followed my 
followed my bliss, followed my 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 journey. And that means that you're mainly interested in responding creatively and kindly and positively to the to the wonderful people that you encounter in an unexpected way. And 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 not everything is synchronicity necessarily, but you'll have those moments when you just know that this particular person uh, is here in answer to to a prayer, if you want to put it in those terms. And uh, you know, Carl Jung wrote a book about synchronicity, and he spoke about uncaused with a capital U, uncaused causality with a capital C, and 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 that's what we're talking about. That somehow, despite ourselves, you know, and and, and I, you know, I I, I think people have to be understood. People do all kinds of not so great things in the course of their lives. But despite all that, we're still cherished enough. That's the word, you know, cherished enough. So that there's this mind of love and creativity and and and, and that that is shaping some of our uh formation and interactions. Um I mean, the, the most dramatic example I had of synchronicity, even more so than, than the, not, well, not more so, the bridge, the bridge was my origin story, you know. But when I was at Case Western, and I, was, I taught at the medical school there for 20 years, and I did not want to leave, but the politics got strange and the money got difficult. So I took a job here in New York. And um, the night we left, you know, we'd sold the house, and my wife and my, I have two kids. My son, who at that time was about thirteen, uh, we were in a in a hotel uh, around Case Western Reserve University, Glidden House, and um, it was about you know eleven or twelve at night. And I went outside with my old friend Tom, who was a lawyer in Cleveland, and he was saying, "We're so sorry you're leaving. Can you change it?" And I said, "I can't. I already sold the house and signed the contract." And and I I was having second thoughts. And lo and behold, again, it's very late at night, and out from the alleyway behind the hotel, um, there's a restaurant. It was called uh, the, uh, what was the name of that? The Peabody. So a fellow comes through the alley, and he's wearing a leather jacket, a suede leather jacket with lots of sort of stringy things and, and bells tied to the end. And he's African-American, and he's very old, and he's got a stick with him beautiful stick that I could even see in the distance was very well carved and ornate and had all kinds of beautiful images, little faces and so forth. And he walked through the alleyway and he came to the table where Tom and I were sitting. It was dark and there was no one around. And and he said, I, I'm here because I had a dream that you would be here and I wanted to give you my stick. And the, actually the, the picture of that stick is in the book, you know. Uh, and I keep it in my office at home next to my chair. And he said, um, this stick knows where you're going, even if you don't. And he said, that's amazing. <laughs> and he said, and he said, you can follow this any place. And, 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 and he said, I'm giving it to you. And I said, but you must have worked hard on this. It's, it's it's big. I mean, it's beautiful. And I said, can I give you some money? He said, $40. I didn't have my wallet. So Tom gave him 40 bucks. I paid Tom back later, but I still have that, that, that staff, if you will. And, and um, it's still very meaningful. Uh, 
So that's synchronicity where somebody, uh, that's an obvious synchronicity. Somebody in, in that kind of absolutely uncanny, unexpected way, just sort of is right there perfectly at the perfect time with the perfect gift in the perfect place. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's an amazing thing. So I, so God in Love on Route 80 is really a collection of episodes of synchronicity over the course of at least much of a lifetime. Yes, well, I was going to ask you about your books, and I really encourage the audience to check out that book and have a read of it. To, just two questions. Um, so Harrison, Harrison, the guy on the bridge, I guess, <laughs> as far as you know, he never jumped and he went to your cousins? Well, he went to George's and, and you know, this was George Lamont. Uh, and, and, you know, George was a really interesting guy. He was a graduate of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, had been to Vietnam and was part of that subculture in, this, in the Bay Area. But uh, he took care of Harrison. And, and I have to say, I, I had a... a a gal friend that summer named Nancy. There used to be a Nancy in the story. I don't tell that in the book. Um, and uh, I, I had left her behind to go up to read. She didn't want to go to Oregon. And uh, so Harrison and Nancy uh, connected. And the two of them uh, actually went back to his home state, which was North Carolina. And I don't stay in touch, but I, I know that they're, they're, they're okay. And, and so uh, that was really impressive that, that somehow or another, um, you know, I had been there on the bridge at just the right time. It was kind of like the guy who came through the alley mm. with that staff at just the right time. I mean, I was feeling pretty low and like I'd made all the wrong decisions, you know. It's just, it's just amazing, you know, the, the synchronicities. You are open to them as well, but, you know, you spoke about time and space. You had dreams about this well before what we, you know, we, we describe as time. I mean, it, it's, yes. it's just incredible. For those, we spoke about following your bliss or passion, as this show is called, but for those that might, for the audience that might be feeling out of sync or not following their hearts calling what's and they're in a funk what's your advice <laughs> you know um cherish nature because i and i have to do that myself um you know i get so caught up in the routines of day-to-day -day life uh and sometimes i'm running on empty and i'm just going through the motions i do get up in the morning about five did that this morning and i have this old-fashioned book that keeps my schedule and i write names in it so uh, I know who I'm going to see over the course of the day. And, um, and I ask myself, what expression of love would be the best one for this individual? Maybe it is forgiveness. Maybe someone did make a big medical mistake the other day and they can't quite live with themselves. Or maybe somebody uh, is really suffering because of, uh, you know, their, their, their son overdosed. Uh, or something along those lines. Maybe somebody just needs a little mirth, you know, or they just need a little creativity, which is an expression of love. So I can give them some ideas about how they might uh, conduct a project. Uh, so I'm always thinking about, about the people I'm going to encounter and um, trying to envision or project 
a loving interaction. So it's not so much love that I think about as the modulations of love. The, love, the modulations are like a spokes on the wheel and love is the hub, you know? And um, and so that's 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 important, but but nature is really key because when you, you know, I'm sure some of your listeners, you know, they meditate and such things and and getting into nature is incredibly important. If you go to a little meditational center down the block, uh, you'll typically find some wind chimes uh, and then you'll see a little stream of water flowing off a small rock, you know, um, you'll see plants and flowers. Um, there's something about connecting with nature and and realizing that nature is truly a gift. We actually held a conference at um, um, Linacre College, Oxford, uh, in uh, in this past May, on the love of nature. And it was really great. I mean, we had all these wonderful, you know, psychologists and philosophers and theologians, uh, you know, from Cambridge and all over, all over. And and it was wonderful. And it's not just, you know, the, the thing is not just um, um, ecology or, um, you know, saving the earth, quote unquote, but it really is, you know, can we love nature? Can we, can we feel that nature is somehow a gift and and if, if you look well i'm sure all your all your listeners have, have have read the lord of the flies you know sam sam does well when he gets back to the shire you know frodo has to go off on that boat with gandalf and the elves and sort of go wafting off we don't know where but but sam sam can reconnect with the shire and he you know he he, he, he marries that wonderful gal and they have a couple of kids and He's gardening all the time. He was a gardener. And, you know, same, you know, if you, if you read Voltaire Candide, uh, you know, for the French, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, at the end, after he's had all these big philosophies of life, uh, he winds up gardening. So there are so many uh, images in great literature of people who, who reconnected with themselves through connecting with nature. And I, that's what I recommend is, you know, meditation, but also spend a lot of time in nature. That's what I did as a kid, you know, at St. Paul's, I was, as I said, walking down these beautiful paths with big pine trees all around me. And, and I, when I, when I need to be inspired now, I take the ferry from Long Island to Bridgeport, Connecticut. It's about an hour and a half ride one way. It only costs 20 bucks round trip. Uh, and you know there are the seagulls and the beautiful waves and and um, I'm not caught up in technology, uh, so it's um, it's a refreshing nature. Nature is a gift to get back on your path, and 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 so you garden. You mentioned that earlier. You, yes, you, we you spoke know. before the show. <laughs> I've got a very big garden. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, so, so what, 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 what's, I mean, it does it, it helps you, right? It helps you sort of reconnect with. I don't know how I'd live without it. It's every time I look at it or look around, I'm blown away by the beauty of it. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's, and, and so when you compare the beauty of nature, like the flowers over your right shoulder, when you compare that with 
the the kind of craziness in our societies right now uh the viciousness the wanton harms that are ongoing um the acrimony uh the expressions of hatred and fear and distrust um you know you could do a lot worse than have a nice garden so i do think that that you know nature is a way of of reconnecting with 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 our journeys because it gives us a, a, a distance and, and 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 so and also just don't be tempted uh, if you feel like you're doing something that's meaningful stick with it good gosh what it's, it's such a delight to speak to you Stephen. where's the best place for people to connect with you or purchase your books <laughs> uh, well well i have a personal website you know Stephen with a ph uh mm-hmm. Stephen G uh, post.com. But I also started an institute. This was complete synchronicity with Sir John Templeton in about uh, 1999. And he named it. He'd written a little book. He was the, the investor who started the Templeton funds. And I'd known him for many years. They're now Franklin Templeton because he sold them to start his foundations. But he really wanted to study uh, love and uh so he faxed me. I was in Cleveland at the time. I remember the morning; the sun was shining, and I got a fax. He did. He, he was. He was. He, he did not email. He was too old for emailing. But he thought the fax was the greatest thing ever invented. Okay, and uh, he said we should start an institute to study the most important asset of human experience, which is love. And then I faxed back. So John, what should we call it? He said the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love. Because he said, I don't want you to just study human love, but also the love that made humans and the love that underlies all of reality. He loved quantum physics and all of that. So um, uh, I said in response to John, maybe we should call it the Institute for Creative Altruism, because altruism is a nice dry concept. And he affects back, no, I think unlimited love up to $8.9 million dollars. And I fax back, Sir John, I love that language. It jumps right off the page. So you can go to unlimitedloveinstitute.org. Uh, I, w- I will leave a link in the show notes below for people just to click yeah. on it if they if they didn't get it. Um, just a couple more questions if you have sure. time. Um, your work in hospice care and particularly those with memory loss or Alzheimer's, I'd love you to share a little bit about that Um with the audience yeah well so many people in your audience you know you every, i mean we all try to manage that difficult part of life um so i for about 30 years i've been working with the deeply forgetful and it just came out of the book last year which has gotten a lot of attention in the u.s called dignity for deeply forgetful people. That includes me on the right day, by the way. Uh, How caregivers can meet the challenges of Alzheimer's disease. And it's really a tribute to caregivers and and what kinds of attitudes they have that make their work successful and meaningful. So I don't like the word dementia because it's kind of like the word retard in structure. It's a negative term. And it invites, if you listen clinically, the you know negative metaphors like she's gone or 
he's absent, uh, you know, and whatever. And, and uh, he's a husk, he's a shell. But I never believe that anybody is, is quote unquote gone. They may have problems retrieving information, but underneath that, we can never say that somehow or another they're gone. And uh, so this is a book in part about what now researchers are studying very significantly about uh, paradoxical lucidity, about people with dementia who seem like they're, they're gone, but then they can be stimulated through personalized music, through dance, through song, through art, through even uh, smelling an apple pie that reminds them of grandmas when they were kids. Uh, you know, uh, this can bring them back into themselves. And and uh, there's a wonderful um, website called uh, musicandmemory.com. Uh, uh, so this is now uh, in Canada, for example, everybody who's diagnosed with dementia, whatever its cause might be, is given um, an iPod to listen to personalized music. And when they do that, they calm down. They use about half what would ordinarily be the prescribed medications in that period. It's not too long a period, but there's a period when they can become agitated and paranoid and so forth. Um, but they use very little medication. They don't need it because by coming into these moments of, of stimulated uh, lucidity, and they're not totally lucid, but they, they'll sing, you know, I, I'm, I'm a board member of the, of the Brooklyn Memory Disorders Center. And they have Alzheimer's poets. Can you believe it? Who are the, and and it's they're there full time. And so you'll have thirty or forty people from Brooklyn come into this uh, room and and with their caregivers. And these are people who are really quite significantly affected. But if the poets read a poem that this cohort connects with, like Robert Frost's "The Road Less Traveled" or whatever it might be, um, um, lo and behold, most of them even like 90% of them will chime in for a word or a line, some for a whole verse, some will actually uh, join in for the whole poem. And then after that, what's so interesting is that you know, maybe two thirds of them are actually somewhat conversant in a surprisingly new way. They're more conversant with their caregivers and they have little moments of memory and they can connect in ways that they weren't doing so before. So, so, I, so I think that what, you know, there's no magic bullet for Alzheimer's. There's no drug that's making huge differences, not even the most uh, innovative new drugs. They're really not magic bullets, but, um, but what, how we interact and, 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 and love the deeply forgetful, that's what makes all the difference. And so I, I talk a lot about, I'm, you know, most people will talk about love for enemies, you know, love your enemy. I don't have any enemies. I have what do I have? I have adversaries and I, and, and I love them because they bring out the best in me. Okay. <laughs> so, um, but, um, but love for the deeply forgetful uh, is a great challenge. And, um, and I think that's where we need to need to work on being totally inclusive uh, of, of people with all kinds of cognitive conditions. So that's been my calling. Okay, that's a calling for me. It's been a calling since I was a, a kid in, 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 at, at St. Paul's. I used to go to the Christian Science Nursing Home and play music for the, um, for the old folks there. Uh, and, uh, 
I never had a sense that that people were absent. Uh, there's a chapter in this book, uh, um, is grandma still there? And uh, the question that grandchildren are sometimes asked me, and, and I always say, of course. Stephen, you 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 are such an inspiration for me, really. I, it, you, this this interview has been so incredible. You, I just thought you're like a human incarnation of an angel, really. Oh, no. What a beautiful person you are. Um, on a final note, is there anything you would like to share with the Passion Harvest audience that I haven't asked you? Yeah. Um... Things have really changed. If, if you look back 20, 25, 30 years ago, studying this kind of topic and making it a scientific matter as well um, was controversial. Uh, you know, uh, I had many colleagues. I, I had a, a big genetics and Alzheimer's research grant when I was at Case Western. Many of my colleagues uh, who didn't believe in in any anything about higher realities, uh, they looked very much down on me for doing this and said it would ruin my career. But uh, I didn't think so. And now, um, you know, even coming here to Stony Brook, we you know, and starting a center for medical humanities, compassionate care bioethics there were people who thought the compassionate care part of that was completely over the top but now you know and that now you can go to stanford or uc san diego or many many great universities and you'll find centers for the study of compassionate care and i think that's progress that's what universities should be doing they should be studying kindness and love in relationship to health and flourishing and that's what we're seeing. It's coming along bit by bit. <laughs> okay, last story, one second story. When I got here, that I remember that night, we, my wife and my son, Drew, uh, we got in from Cleveland. It's about a nine-hour drive. Came over the George Washington Bridge out on the North Shore of Long Island here. And we stayed at the Three Village Inn, which is one of those old inns with a little bit of mildew where George Washington supposedly slept. <laughs> Maybe. And... Uh, and my son, who's 13, he just realized the penny dropped. He realized, oh, my God, I'm getting texts from my friends back in Ohio, and they're wondering, why wasn't I at soccer practice? So he was upset. And my wife was upset. It was the worst night of my life. So I said to them, you know, I can't change this, but I can go out and get some pizza. <laughs> so I went out in the car. And I drove down the main drag of Stony Brook and, and the neighboring town. And I went to Little Joe's Pizzeria. Now, mind you, it's like raining cats and dogs and the thunder is huge and the lightning is bright. And I walk across this parking lot and I get into Little Joe's Pizzeria. And in the foyer, there's a newspaper stand. <laughs> this will amaze you. And there's only one newspaper on the stand and I've never seen it. It's called the Three Village Herald. Right. And it's like all the little towns on the North Shore of Long Island. And there's only one headline on the front page. And it said, unlimited love comes to Stony Brook. 
Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I about killed over because some, some <laughs> porter who I later met, she's a nice gal. Um, she had even interviewed the dean of this medical school, who's a very well-known nephrologist, pediatric nephrologist, and the chair of my department. Um, and say they said, so are you sure this is the guy you want to hire? And to their great credit, they said, well, we think he can do this work. And if he has these interests, that's okay with us. So yeah. my first day of work, <laughs> I I called the president of the university who had recruited me, Shirley Ketty, and, and I asked her, Shirley, did you see that newspaper article? And she said, yeah, I did see it. And I said, well, what did you think? She said, well, you know, it was okay. I got some phone calls. <laughs> and I said, I said, who called you? She said, emeritus professors, mostly male professors. And I said, well, what did they ask you? And she said, laughing, they asked me, what kind of love are we talking about? <laughs> oh, <laughs> so that, so your that unlimited was love. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then I was in, in the middle of this building, there's an escalator and I was taking the escalator from the second to the third floor. And there was this guy up at the top of the escalator who looked a little bit like a small Mr. Clean. He had his arms crossed and he was kind of, you know, he looked like he was in decent shape and he was looking at me intently. And, and as I go, oh, I'm going up the escalator. It's my first time in the building. And I, I, I said to him, as I get closer to the top, do, do I know you? Do I know you, sir? And he looked at me and he said, this is completely verbatim. He said, are you Dr. Post? This was, a, this was a microbiologist, it turns out. He's a friend of mine now, you know. And, and, and I said, yes, sir. And then he said, may I ask you a question? Are you going to save us? Oh. <laughs> and I practically died. And I said, well, I, I got up to the top of the escalator. And I said, well, I don't think so necessarily, but I'm 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 happy to be here. And we, we had a nice, he was actually, a, he's a good violinist. And I was a... A classical guitarist growing up so we had we talked about uh Villalobos and such things but it was it was interesting and and and, and so there, there was that sense of you know on the journey you know you think of jo joseph campbell there are going to be surprising moments where you run into little obstacles but the obstacles aren't they're not there to do ultimately damage they're there to bring out your best and how i responded to that fellow on the stairs and 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 you know and i did bring the pizza home to my son and my wife and they were okay and we got a house and life went on and everyone's doing well but um you know you just have to you have to be open to surprises and expand the canvas i use that expression a lot you have to when, when there's a, a moment and it's like a Jackson Pollock painting, you know, Pollock would put a big splash of, of pretty miserable looking uh, paint down on the canvas on the floor. And it didn't look like anything. It had no particular aesthetic qualities. But by the time he covered it up with all those beautiful lines, energetic lines, it became a thing of beauty. So you're always, no matter what the difficulty anybody faces, even if they feel they're off their calling, um, they're struggling because of a loss or because of some mishap or something not so great. And life is full of that. Um, you have to see that those moments 
are not final. They're not ultimate reality. The ultimate reality is how you expand the canvas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Pollock's a great example because unlike a figurative painter, he did he didn't know what the, the picture was going to turn out like. No, no, no. He didn't know what it was going to look like. He didn't have a photo of what he was painting. It's a perfect analogy. Yeah, he didn't plan that stuff. Like life. <laughs> like life. I mean, he 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 was he was a incredibly creative human being, but he did it in 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 connection with this source of creativity. Mm. You know, and um, so you know, I I I, I when I, when I get to England, I get to Cambridge University. I always go to Trinity College, which is one of the oldest ones, and and there's a library there. Um, and in the middle of the library is a glass case with the two notebooks of Ramanujan, the man who knew infinity. There's a movie written done about him, the man who knew, and he was just a, he's a you know mid adolescent. And he had no particular mathematical prowess. And he would be, you know, meditating and praying at the foot of his goddess statue. And he would just receive um, these algorithms. And he wrote them down with his finger in the dirt next to him. And then he came back a little later and he would record them in these notebooks. And 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 the, the, uh, somebody got a hold of them, and and they were so impressive. They sent them to Ox to Oxford, and the people at Oxford, Littleton, who was the most renowned mathematician at the turn of the century, uh, he invent he invited Ramanujan there, and Ramanujan Ramanujan went there, and lived for a couple of years. But the problem was, they kept insisting that he that he prove his theorems, and he, he thought that was completely unnecessary. And of course, they all turned out to be true, and they are pretty much the basis of quantum physics. And so, so that is um, a comment about the one mind. It's a comment about how sometimes, I mean, even even Einstein would go into these meditational moments that he called Gedanka moments, where he would just, you know, he'd play a little violin to get started, and he'd look out at his garden, and then he would just go into these states of elevated consciousness sometimes for an hour or so and that's where he got a lot of his inspiration so um you know even michael faraday i mean i mean his his whole theory about um wave functions and 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 so forth um he was clear that he received that in a dream so you know we we, we can't think that our minds are just derived from tissue from cells from an organ called the brain when i was in chicago i had the honor of studying with a nobel prize laureate in uh, neuroscience and his name was sir john eccles he was actually from sydney from australia originally and 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 then he went to oxford and then he went to chicago and i really loved sir john and that that's not sir john templin that's sir john eccles and sir john eccles um even though he discovered everything basically, that we know about the connection between uh, neurological cells, synapses, um, the idea of neurotransmitters, he created that, you know, but uh, um, he never believed that you could reduce mind to matter. He thought that mind preceded matter, and that if anything, you know, matter is uh, derived from mind, from some kind of original mind or uh, one mind. Mm. 
and uh, so that's 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 what I believe. And I and and I've known so many great philosophers. I mean, the person who wrote the foreword to Gone Love on Route eighty is Larry Dossi, you know, who's renowned for his one mind ideas. And so, so I think that that when we elevate our awareness of the gift of the mind. By the way, Sir John Templeton, uh, about 40 years ago, he wrote a letter to all of his investors, a Christmas note. And it said, my Christmas note to you is this. Are you aware that your mind is a gift? <laughs> I knows what they thought. They probably thought he was crazy. <laughs> but he was a great investor. Yeah. And and so so mind is a mystery, and we we can't reduce it uh, to to matter. And that's why when my mom called me that night at Reed College, and the phone rang, um, that was mind at work, because it was more than her local mind. Uh, Deepak Chopra talks a lot about non-local mind. So this was the non-locality of mind, and 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 it, it it's when we understand that. I mean, I, I realize you know the you know the many great biologists say, well, we're we're connected as human beings because you know my my uh, particular uh, virology can affect yours, you know, if I'm contagious or whatever it is, or you know we're all dependent on the same food chains or whatever it might be. That's all true. But at a much deeper level, we are all one. And so when we when we love someone else, um, when we even do something heroic for them, but just are kind to them, we're also being kind to ourselves. And that's the secret. Beautiful, beautiful, Stephen. Oh, thank you so much. And gosh, what a beautiful way to end the show, but everything, everything, wonderful, wonderful. And and thank you so much for the work you're doing in the world. It was a pleasure to have you on Passion Harvest. Thank you very much, uh, Louisa. <laughs> and thank you to all of your listeners. And uh, I wish you all the blessings in the universe. Thank you so much. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, see so you. Take care. <laughs> if you like this episode, please do subscribe.